And you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library Podcast. It's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. And my name is Jeff Milo. Joining me on the podcast today is Cal Freeman. Cal Freeman is actually the pen name of John Freeman, a Detroit-based poet and educator. He's had works published in several notable journals, including the New Orleans Review, the Poetry Review, and so many others. He's the recipient of the Divine Poetry Fellowship. He's also been nominated for multiple Pushcart Prizes in both poetry and creative nonfiction. He's also been contributing reviews of collections of poetry to public radio, Michigan Public Radio, and he has been an educator for Oakland University and also the Inside Out Literary Arts here in Detroit, but he is currently based over in Dearborn and he was recently contributing to what we had as a virtual writer's showcase here at the Ferndale Library that's on our YouTube channel. It's called Beginning, Middle, End, and he read a work of poetry for me out in an idyllic little park on the west side way over there by the airport, but uh, thankfully no planes were flying overhead as he read some of his beautiful poetry, which you can sample in one of his most recent books, which was called Fight Songs. It came out in 2017. John Freeman is also a musician, guitarist, songwriter, a member of the collaborative ensemble of, of folk music coming from the band The Codgers. Uh, so we'll be linking to The Codgers so you can hear John's voice as a songwriter. We'll link to their band camp, but we'll also link to John's website so you can check out some of his works. You could actually look for some of his works here in the library too if you wanted, like fight songs. But in this chat where we are talking intensely about the craft of creative writing and sculpting poetry, in this chat, he also gets to announcing that he has a new book coming out next April. So that's exciting news, but it's exciting to me just in general to introduce anyone who is not familiar yet with John Freeman, the writer, pen name, Cal Freeman. Uh, excited to introduce this fellow to you because he has such a, a great sensibility. And we start out talking about not just writing, but we're talking about actually teaching at the start of this chat, but also how important it is just to be a reader. You could want to be a writer, but you have to read and you have to be exposed to different rhythms and different voices. It's only going to strengthen your own creative expression when you get to the page. Uh, enough from me. You'll see more info in the show notes about John. Here is our chat. Could we start with uh kalamazoo what were you doing in kalamazoo <laughs> <laughs> well i was in um i was actually in Coldwater, michigan but i was kind of near the kalamazoo river okay. um okay and um my wife um you know she's um she's sort of a area superintendent for some schools and uh one of her schools is out that way in cold water okay. so um i just kind of tagged along and uh was doing a write-a-thon for uh, Inside Out Literary Arts, you know, Detroit. And I've been, um, I've been teaching for them for about the past year or so, okay. um, serving as a writer in residence. So they, they do this big fundraiser. They try to get you to do this write-a-thon and get people to contribute. And you set a goal for every day of that week. And so I was writing like, like about a page of, a page of prose a, a day for a week, which you know, I, I might have loved a couple days and not quite got, not quite gotten to a full page, but <laughs> yeah, so that's what I was doing out there. And um, 
you know, that, that sort of like Midwesterner in me has trouble sometimes asking people for things. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I, I said to myself, you know, it's, it's, it's inside out. They do such like vital work with bringing like creative writing programs to K-12 schools mm-hmm. that like, I, I can, you know, I can, um, I can live with like making that ask, you know, to sure. people because it's such a, such a great organization. Sure. Um, and, um, so yeah, I mean, I was doing that um, and uh, just kind of enjoying this little tributary of the Kalamazoo River I was staying on and, and getting some writing done. And uh, you made you made the phrase making the ask, looking at the water, and, right? You know, um, right. Yeah, you made making the ask, but also you're encouraging you're encouraging others to write. Uh, that's true. That's, doesn't that's, that also tie in a little bit to your role as a teacher? Uh, definitely in a way yeah man that's a good insight i think um and teaching writing is a whole different can of worms but it's um that is the main thing is is encouragement and i I actually think you know this this may sound self-ennobling or something but i I do think a lot of um, writing instructors miss that encouragement part Mm -hmm. you know um they're so worried about what a student might be doing wrong grammatically or you know stylistically sure. that they forget that your job is to just make people want to write. I mean, that's really, um, your, your first job, you know, sure. and you can, you can scale your level of criticism and feedback to, to where the students at. There are some students who, who need you to be a little tougher on their writing or kind of at that point where, you know, they need more of a challenge, but there are other students who just need more of a push, you know, and, um, and getting over that anxiety hurdle, um, is so important when you're when you're teaching writing because yeah. like, most of the problems students have with writing come from the fact that like they've been told at points in their lives that they're like bad writers you know and just convincing them that they have something to contribute that they're not bad writers that that writing badly especially in the early drafts of things is important to allow sure. yourself to do you know um sure. and so uh, i think that is a really good insight though that you're trying to encourage people to, to write i think uh it sounds as though you have to put on two different pairs of eyeglasses or two different lenses. Uh, there is a book, and I'll fact check myself later. Uh, it's in our collection here because we have lots and lots of books on, yeah. how, on how to write and grammar and language, etc. And I believe the title of the book is something generic like How to Say It. And, you know, okay. probably with a subtitle of, of helping people. So how to say it. And, and that is what, we, what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people who are beginning to write figure out the proper way to structure a sentence. Uh, but what I'm getting at is, uh, yes, you can look at how to say it. But you also have to appreciate what are they saying. Right. Uh, maybe they don't. Maybe they don't know how to say it, but when you read the papers, you have to link. I I see and hear where this writer student is coming from. What a beautiful thing! Not to strangle that away, right? So right, yeah. No, what are they trying to say, and how do you help them get there? That's really it, you know. Yeah, Um, because that's that's so perfect, you know. Um, They're trying to say something, and and, you know, even if it's not landing, you you know, you want to figure out where are they going and how do they get there, Mm -hmm. and uh, and, um, sometimes it's just a matter of. uh, you know, like putting a check next to a sentence and say something like, maybe revisit this one, you know, um, mm-hmm. 
for clarity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like that's, that's a lot more useful than correcting their grammar. Sure. Um, you know, and they'll, 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 then they'll go back and, you know, hopefully read it aloud to themselves oh, sure. and figure out what was I trying to say? Where, how can I make it clear? Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge believer in like reading aloud, you know, and I was, I was trying to instill that in my students. I'm like, there's so much that might not land exactly right. Um, that you won't catch if you're looking at the words on the on the screen of your monitor, or, you know, or your laptop, whatever. Um, but if you read it aloud yourself, you'll hear you'll hear kind of the dead spots in the writing. You'll hear mm-hmm. places where the phrasing might be inflated and clunky, um, and might not make sense to a reader. So you you know, those are the ones where you're, you'll hear them and you'll go back and and try to rework them and like. So like I'm you know I'm big on this idea of sentence acoustics you know mm-hmm. what, what's the thing sound like how should it sound and that sound usually could tell you everything about the way the meaning is going to land you oh, know? Yeah. Um, oh yeah oh so, yeah also yeah. this is why it's important to read a lot because you you can read other poets and other authors and it's not necessarily that you have to write exactly like them or try to t- try try to cop their style but you get a sense for rhythm. I know that really helped me a lot is when I read more authors, I got a variety of the rhythm. Yeah. I love, I love that, man. That Yeah. The um, rhythm and cadence. It's so true. And like, I don't, I don't view reading and writing as um, separate processes. Like I, I think they're inextricable and um, my reading life is my writing life in many ways. You know, a lot of my poems are even like called note taking while reading, you know, of gravity and grace or note taking while reading acts, you know, I'm uh-huh. like, I like, I've got that, um, I've got that titling sequence, you mm-hmm. know, that be in, in the reason that titling sequence exists for me is because again, the, the reading and the writing life are inextricable. They mm-hmm. inform one another and that you're right. That sound is so interesting that, that notion of like cadence and rhythm, um, that you get from reading, um, other people's work. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, we, we're, we're the sort of amalgamation of influences as writers, you know, oh, yeah. uh, um, of things we've read and people we've talked to things we've overheard. Um, you know, and there, there's some writers that are hard for me to read, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, without, um, imitating them too closely mm-hmm. or, um, you know, like, um, Strangely, like Gertrude Stein and John Ashbery both come to mind as writers. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm writing, like I, I can't have those voices and rhythms in my head because everything comes out like Gertrude Stein or John Ashbery and probably like a, a bad knockoff of those two mm-hmm. as well. You know, there there's certain echoes that are very difficult for me to resist, you know, Um and then there are there are other writers who make writing just like possible for me. You know, like when I'm reading, um, when I'm reading, um, for instance, the poet um, uh, Charles Wright, I I feel like it's possible for me to write poems while I'm writing Charles Wright. And I, I don't feel like I'm imitating Charles Wright, but I he whatever it is about his voice and his cadence and rhythm makes me feel like I can go and, and write. You know? Oh yeah, um, oh yeah. You I'll know, just... you got those. Uh, Jerry, the, one of my favorite writers, Jerry Dennis, calls that like juice. You know, he's like, "Got to, got to get the juice in you." You know, um, and he says, "That's what he says." He, he goes to reading for. You yeah. Know, other times I'll go to reading because I want to remind. Like, if I feel like I'm not writing well, 
I'll pick up something I know that I think of as great, just to remind myself what, where's the quality? Like what's, what's, what's the quality threshold? You know, like what, um, where are you at? You know, you, I, I feel very tin-eared on certain days where I, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And I, you know, and that, it's weird, man, that confidence flows and ebbs as, mm-hmm. as a writer, you know, mm-hmm. kind of circling back to what we were talking about with students and encouragement yep. and trying to get them over anxiety hurdles. I mean, I think part of the reason I know that is, is important is because I go through that all the time where right. I'll mm-hmm. lose confidence in my, my voice or my sentence or my line. Or there'll, there'll be weeks at a time where I forget what a what a line in a poem's supposed to do, you mm-hmm. know, and it's not supposed to do one specific function, right? But like, I, I just forget what what the hell is a line? Like what, right. What purpose does it serve? What what should it achieve? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> right. But uh, we also can't be asking those questions in the thick of it. Uh, true. We really yeah. can't ask those questions until the page is full. And I, this fascinates me. This this you use the word confidence and i think that you know we talk about that that midwestern vibe that you and i have you know we're too shy to ask for help we're too shy to we want to do it try everything ourselves we might be mm, uh, lacking the self-confidence that uh, anyone would really want to read i think that's so prevalent in not only student writers but adult writers um because i'll bring it up right here this library we started a writer's group and we oh, have cool. lots of adults in there and some of them are some of them want to write poetry some of them want to write uh memoirish essays you know they just want to get into it and that hurdle of the confidence um is such a thing it requires i think it's worth saying that it requires a certain gumption that you just need to get it on the page you can't be wallowing in any of that doubt uh no, that's brilliant, Jeff. Yeah. That's so true. Because go, go ahead, man. I, I oh, I was just it. saying, like, yeah. you have to find that way of saying you, not a, a a cheesy platitude like believe in yourself, but I believe in uh, living in that moment of the hour or two hours that you have set aside to get a thing on the page and being able to block out whether or not anyone's going to read it. Get right. that even out of your head. Because right. this is just between you and the page, and you can exactly. say whatever you want. <laughs> right, right. And and turning off that internal editor that yeah. wants to make sort of quality assessments right. about the words you're putting down, right. the sentences you're putting down. Right. Because you cannot, you can't, like you can't have that editor go, going in your head if, right. when you when you're drafting stuff. And oh, um, yeah. you know, um, are you familiar with the poet Jamal May? Do you know him? He's a oh local Detroit yeah, area yeah he's just in Wayne State you know really um really awesome poet oh, um yes. super sharp guy too and uh he said some I, I was given a reading with him years ago at U of D high and um this really stuck with me he he told the students there that um writers are the only artists who have to like generate their materials before they can get started so he said you know if you're a sculptor you've got clay or copper or something to work with. He said, if you're um, if you're a painter, you've got a, a brush, paints, and canvas. All that stuff is supplied for you. But if you're a writer, you need to kind of generate the clay you're going to use to sculpt <laughs> the thing into shape, right? right? That's what you're talking about. Right. Turning off that editor, you know, getting the ball of clay out there so you can start to work with it and, and right. sculpt it and, and shape it into something. You there's know? there's and, this uh, whole other thing that you have to decide 
how much material you're going to make because you and I could sit down and you and I might say, all right, we're going to write a story about a man who is in the Navy and he's on a ship. And then you have to decide, oh, well, I have to describe the ship. How much am I going to describe this ship? Three or four paragraphs worth? Do I describe the whole hull and everything? Or do I just say he's on a ship? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that um, that question of like descriptive detail mm-hmm. and in making making sure that it's it's useful, it's carrying its weight and it's right. going to be interesting for, for the reader, you know, so it's and like how much of a portrait do you need to paint not yeah. want but need so right right fascinating stuff it um, is really interesting i've been uh, reading george saunders a swim in the pond and a swim in a pond in the rain and, okay. uh, he's just dissecting some of these uh, short stories by these russian writers and mm-hmm. talking about what you can learn from them and mm-hmm. that's one of the things he gets into is like descriptive detail and in economy in terms of descriptive detail. It's George really- Saunders is a great example of someone, and I mean this in the best way possible, because I know he writes a lot of nonfiction, but if he does write fiction, he's not going to hold your hand. Right. Uh, he's going to give yeah. you a story, but it's almost like you have to color in the rest of the, the paint by numbers for yourself. Definitely. And you have to like make these big concessions to get into the world of some of his fiction. Like mm-hmm. Lincoln and the Bardo, you have to except that there are ghosts mm-hmm. talking to each other and inhabiting different human bodies and things. And then, you know, like civil war land and bad decline, you have to, right. You have to accept the fact of these ghosts past Aurelia. You have to accept whatever weird world that is. And right. In the, in the, what he calls the big slot that delivers the goat mm-hmm. <laughs> every morning for them to eat, you know? Mm-hmm. So there are these like giant concessions you have mm-hmm. to make to get into his fiction. Even, yeah. Uh, as a reader. Um, uh, yeah, so I guess, I, and while I hear it, because I could talk to you about writing for forever, um, it fascinates me that anyone could devote themselves to the the tricky discipline of of poetry because when, and I'm not trying to compare apples and oranges, but when, you know, because I've written not that I need anyone to read it, but I've written books before. I've written book length pieces of fiction and they can. They're really good. I've I've read. Yeah, but thank you. A lot of authors talk about they can burn through three or four pages in a day because there's some action, you know, you're on the Navy ship and you just try to describe the sea and plot, plot, plot moves it along. But poetry, it takes minimum a full day, like you said, with the inside out, a full day to get a page. Um, yeah. So it fascinates me that everyone in that craft of poetry, like yourself, is able to dedicate themselves to that. And it just fascinates me how you hone that. Because, right. you know, I've been writing since I was young. You've been writing since you were young. Just curious how you got along the path to becoming poet. I know that's a broad question. No, it's it's a good question. And it's one that I mean, there's a very long answer. Uh, <laughs> That's why we got a uh, podcast. Yeah, there we go. Um, my, you know, my uh, my dad was an English professor, um, and um, and sort of like, I, I don't mean this like this is probably a really awful characterization of my dad, but my dad was an English professor and a failed poet, a really successful scholar, mm-hmm. like um, 
you know, um, he had, had a PhD in French, English, and Italian Renaissance mm -hmm. lit, um, had uh, published articles in really impressive places mm -hmm. about about writers as varied as like William Shakespeare and Tupac Shakur, you know, like, okay. so like really, um, really successful scholarly writer. Um, but like, as a young man, he wanted to be a poet. So like, and he just, I don't know, man, he never, he never really, um, never really stuck with it. I think mm -hmm. just kind of had to teach and yeah, he had other uh, stuff on his plate. Yeah. Um, but there are always poetry books at home and my mom, like has this uncanny ability to um, memorize verse and recite it. And, uh -huh. um, and she had like, she went to like Henry Ford college and Wayne state and took some um, like took some drama and took some creative writing and like, it's kind of um, just a nurse by trade, but she, she would just recite these long poems. Like, I mean, um, Alfred Noises, The Highwayman, you know, it's just like this lengthy poem. She could just rattle that off from wow. memory and like, and dramatize it perfectly. So just like, get all the cadences, all the little sejuras that you, you would want in that poem to like, make it come to life, like recite Pose the Raven, you know? And so like, I always got like, you know, when we're talking about rhythms and cadences, I like when I write poetry, I feel like inevitably because I, I started hearing my mother recited at such a young age that I've got those cadences and rhythms mm -hmm. in my mind. The way she would recite a poem, I think is a lot of the way my poems would, would come out. My, my mom like writes poetry sometimes too, but like not, I don't, I don't think she's like real serious about like sending it out into the world or revising it. It's more just like mm -hmm. kind of sharing with friends and family. Mm -hmm. But so, you know, my, my parents were huge, influences on me and i think like in eighth grade when i was having real trouble um in school like specifically in english class i was just kind of slacking off um and um my dad i think recognized that i needed something to read that was gonna like actually like speak to me so he, he gave me like a copy of living at the movies by jim carroll um Whoa. and a copy of um Allen ginsburg's reality sandwiches you know the old little um city lights book you know um and like in eighth grade that stuff felt very like subversive and daring and dangerous to me That's you know usually, like, usually you don't get to that till you're 18 19 so right right <laughs> but I, I think my dad just saw like okay this kid likes all these like rock and roll bands that like are dangerous and subversive and like he's not reading any books right. so maybe if i like give him a book of poems by this guy who also happened to front a rock and roll band. He'll be into it. And, you know, and I, it was very like brilliant pedagogical move on my father's right. part. And then the, Ginsburg is sort of like one of the first punk rockers in a way. Oh so. yeah. Yeah. And I think you can think of him like that for yeah. sure. And, um, and so that just, that got me like into a point where I, I loved reading after that, you know, and, um, and that just so made important. English class easy, you Exposure. know, like, so I liked reading and writing then, and then yeah. I started to think about like how some of these po like some of these um, rock musicians like would draw on poetry to help them write lyrics and stuff. And at that point, like I was starting to play electric guitar and mm -hmm. thinking like, okay, like if I want to be serious about like being a songwriter here, like you know, like Lou Reed and um, Jim Morrison, they love poetry, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that's why they were good lyricists. Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe this can help me with like writing rock and roll lyrics too. So, um, so that just, 
got me going. And then, um, you know, when I, um, my, you know, because my dad was a prof at UDM, um, I could go to school there for free. And I didn't have to worry about like incurring debt, which is just like an insane privilege to have. I, you know, that's not everybody's Nowadays, situation. even more so, yeah. Yeah, uh, totally. So I, I just kind of, um, I was like, well, what, what do I like to study? I like, I like books and writing. So I'm just going to be an English major and I'm not going to worry about the career careerist kind of stuff that most college kids worry about. And I get, and I get why most college kids have to worry about that because college is crazy expensive. Right. And you're incurring debt to do it. And I understand right. it, but I was, I was able to just be like, no, this is what I like. This is what I'm studying, you know? Um, and so, um, I had some like wonderful people at, at UDM during undergrad, um, who, um, who really helped me. Um, and, uh, one person who comes to mind, especially is Claire Crabtree. Um, she recently retired from there, but, um, she was like a Faulkner scholar who was also a published poet and did all the creative writing there. And she was just, um, fantastic, like really encouraging. Um, she was my first real creative writing teacher. And then, um, when I, uh, graduated, you know, I applied to, um, the MFA program at Bowling Green. So I really liked this poet down there named Larissa Sporluk. And I also liked like the fact that if you went to school down there, you could uh, work on the Mid-American Review, which is like a really cool quarterly lit mag. So, um, so I got in down there and, and studied like, and that was tough. You know, I mean, that was like real hardcore workshop sometimes hearing things you don't want to hear about your work. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes even like, uh, incurring snarky comments, uh, and, you know, having to like live with them, you know? So, um, so doing an MFA was like, uh, it was, it was a cool thing, but it was, um, it was, it was exhausting. I think by, by the time I got through the second year, mm -hmm. I was like, I was like tired of showing people poems and talking, talking critically <laughs> about poetry. You know, I was ready to get back to where, um, where I was when I loved it. But like one of the things I learned um, from Larissa Sporlick, um, she was big on like process and big on like, okay, if you're going to revise a line in a poem, don't sit there and look at that line on the screen and try to tweak it. What you need to do is get it back into the notebook, mm -hmm. pen and paper, mm -hmm. recopy the entire poem up to that line and then make the change in stride, you know? So it's like, um, you're, cause what she's, she said, like, what happens then is that you're you're recopying and you're getting back in touch with the um, cadence and the rhythm that you um, that you were in touch with during the genesis of the poem. So, yes. like, you're, you're not just looking at it after the fact, but you're yes. back in the space you were when you were writing it. Yes. Um, and so that idea of, like, living with the thing in the notebook for a long time before you go to the word processor, um, it's really been a useful process for me. That's something I got. Um, you know, at, from Larissa at Bowling Green. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the story, I guess, of how I became a poet. I love so, it. I love it. Yeah. I, yeah. this is, this is going to be a, a very kind of sweaty metaphor that I'm going to use, but that idea of working it out on the page and coming to the line as you are writing it with your hand, given you that you have probably been charting out something for the last five to six minutes and your hand is the hand muscle is tensing and right. your brain and your hand are connecting. You are going to make something of a split decision, split second decision 
about that line as your pen comes to it, uh, almost in the same way that your brain is operating, operating under this, this primal mortal survive motor survival skill. Like if, if your house was on fire, you would run in and grab everything you need and run out without even actually realizing that you're grabbing what you're grabbing. Your brain is just deciding in the moment. And when you come to that line, you're just like, all right, the house is on fire. I got to get everything out. That's what it is. Right. Done. Right. Period. Right. Right. <laughs> and then sometimes it's not done. You do it all over. But <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think it's a great process and it's a great way to just like really get into the music of mm-hmm. what you're, you know? And, yeah. Uh, and I don't know if this is, this goes back to the thing of just getting it on the page. I will write outlines of something that I want to get started on and I am making peace with the reality that what I am putting on the page is very sloppy and half thought out, but it, it it's almost bullet points sometimes, but it's just getting it. What is the essence, I guess, of what I want to get? You know, you can flesh it out later, but it's almost like uh, going to your palette and saying, well, I know I want purple and turquoise and green. And then... Right. Then you smear it all together and you paint it onto the canvas. So yeah, exactly. You know that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, I have to try that. Um, I don't outline a lot, like in that way. I, yeah. I do sometimes jot down notes or random, excuse me, lines or images that come to me. But I, um, yeah. But I think that would, I, I think that especially would be useful in like certain prose situations mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I know you do a lot of work in journalism, which right. I. Um, I, I I write what you would consider a flash style, like thousand to two thousand words, right. usually essays. Um, and so, yeah, you have to make a lot of decisions in that. In that, regard. yeah. And you, you, it's interesting. Your, your writing's interesting to me when you're in that mode. I know you write yeah. in multiple genres. I mean, you're you're a great fiction writer too. But when you're in that um, journalism mode, your your voice still sticks out because I think you're. Um, I think a lot of especially music journalists tend to try to say this artist is like this artist and it's a good record and we're done. Whereas I feel like you try to get at the person and also get at the sounds of the instrumentation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like, which I think is really cool, a cool effect. Like when, when Milo's writing about your music, like you'll notice things about the instrumentation and I'll try to characterize the way the music actually sounds for right. the reader, not just not just give the reader a kind of generic overview of the style, right? right? And I, I think that's um, that's something you work into that mode that a, a lot of people really don't. You know, it's all about listening uh, yeah. for me. You know, we've been at, on this podcast chatting for a while. Usually, every interview I usually do is this hour long chunk of transcribed dialogue, but you got to find this one thing about the subject that you know probably is a good anecdote and probably paints a good picture it and that one thing is the the point of access for the reader right so i really resonate if i were writing an article about this podcast i really resonate with your story about your mother reading out loud and you intuiting cadence and i would paint a picture of you maybe in your living room and invite the reader in and just and then we would then the whole piece would probably be a meditation on listening and reading, um, right? Which I think is very important to you, and I think that that's what people would take away. So definitely, 
Um, yeah, man. I love it. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead. Sorry. Uh, oh, no, I I just, gonna, go ahead. I was going to tell you, man, I've been on this like James Joyce kick for the last uh, eight months, you know, and um, I like everybody talks about him as like a difficult writer, right? Speaking and, like of portraits. I, right. Yeah. But, but I, I think like one of the things I came to realize about him is like, okay, yeah, if you want to track down like every allusion to like myth and history that he makes in his work, I suppose you could look at him as difficult, but if you just like the way the prose sounds like that's it, man, mm-hmm. that's how to do it. You know, like that's <laughs> how to read him. And like, uh, yeah. So I don't, I don't yeah. know why that came to mind, but I do think like the music is, is what it's all Absolutely. about. Sometimes you can, you can pick can, up Joyce the music can circumvent the difficulty, whatever oh, yeah. difficulty you might have with a text. If you appreciate the way it's sounding, oh, yeah. the way the words are, are working like that, that's a whole, that's the most important level. Yeah, you could pick up Joyce and just pretend that you're listening to a a, a soloist jazz drummer, and yeah. you just respond to those beats. You might totally. you're like, uh, there's no there's no melody here, but you're like, oh, but this these beats. So right, right. So, um, hey Jeff, I'm gonna pour myself a quick cup of coffee. Sure, you, please do. Yeah. All right, I'm back. That's all right. Great. We appreciate coffee on this podcast. Oh, yeah, man. I, um, I've i been on this um, Roos Roast Portland nice. blend. I, right. it's, it's really good. Nice. Uh, they're out of Ann Arbor, man. But, um, yeah, they um, they just started carrying it around me in here in Dearborn, so sure. I, can, I can buy it here. So I've been very, very happy, you know, like a just uh, really good, dark, strong coffee. Right. Like really, really, really good stuff. So wanted to get into something else that's important about you is like to these two at this other side of course that we kind of touched on is that you're a musician you're also a songwriter which also probably uh explains a bit about why you loved poetry as much i mean songwriting is not exactly the same but it does require the same economy of language and 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 cadence as well and right. and then so if you could first talk about what you find fulfilling about music too, because we just talked about Joyce as being yeah. music esque, but uh, do you feel that there are similar things in your brain and heart that are receiving fulfillment and, and dopamine from creating a song as creating poetry or is it, is it two different adventures for you? It's definitely two different adventures. Yeah. Like, you know, songwriting is, um, it, for me, is harder than poetry writing. I think uh, it, it, songs have so many, like, challenges. Like, there's so much you can't put in a song. You've got a lot of freedom mm-hmm. on the page when it comes to poems, especially if you're writing in free verse, you know, when you're writing without formal constraints. Um, you can do a lot in a poem. They're, like, I mean... At this point in the 21st century, there aren't any real rules about what you can and can't do with poetry. Um, songs, like like you said, there's still a cadence and like a loose meter to a song that like kind of has to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can you can narrate in songs, but you you know you have, you have to be very economical. Yeah. Um, and if you want anybody to listen to it in like the kinds of bars I play in. Like you can't get much north of four minutes, right. <laughs> you know, three um, verses. To get, 
yeah to get your story in and um and so um and the other thing about songwriting i would say at least from my experience is it's a much more collaborative process when i'm when i'm writing poems i'm like here with the voices in my head and like the writers that i love but i'm not like um not actually actively collaborating with anybody mm-hmm. until after the thing's drafted. I might show it to like my friend, Michael Laughlin or, um, you know, my friend, um, um, Dan Resnick down in Ohio, my friend, Rebecca, Gail Howell. She's great. Um, great fe- source of feedback for me. But, um, when I'm writing songs, like a lot of times I'm like writing with like Nick Mansfield, you know, my, my buddy is like, uh, plays harmonica on, plays the Irish frame drum and like, you know, as a fireman in Detroit and works on Zug Island, has got all, all sorts of interesting experiences to draw from. That's a person who like gets me outside of my own head. Um, and I think like helps me make songs mm-hmm. more accessible, mm-hmm. you know, um, or, you know, um, a lot of times I'm writing with like Don Dupree, um, you know, and I, I like going to river Rouge, like make that pilgrimage and like mm-hmm. sit down with him and pick his brain. And that guy's just brilliant with like, song structure and like how to how to make it work within within that sort of constraint you're you know that i'm working within most of the time mm-hmm. like keeping it south of four minutes right having a hook and or chorus right you know that people can latch on to that's going to make them listen to it mm-hmm. you know all that stuff um he's great with and then like we'll write together too um so it's songwriting is way more collaborative poetry is by and large like a more solitary activity for sure. me Sure. Uh, for the most part, I've got I've got poet friends that I turn to for feedback, but I'm really like in my own world and head when I'm writing poems and um, and um, yeah and, and so um, and I don't I'm not nearly as prolific as a songwriter as I am as a poet like um, and with songs I'll give up on them a lot easier than I will poems mm-hmm. um, I'll just be like man who wants to hear this you know mm-hmm. um, so, I, I don't know what you're allowed to do in a song anymore, but like for me, you know, a lot of the moves I make in poems don't seem possible in songs. So my songs are about like bars you drink at, friendships you have, mm-hmm. like these real, you might almost say like quotidian mundane themes that I'm, that I'm working with in songs, you know, it's still just, valuable to ruminate on friendship, still valuable, but uh, yeah. uh, a bit down the middle, simpler, you know, right. universal, get that. Yeah. Real right. quick. And my, I'm, I'm much more like sentimental in songs, yeah. you know, yeah. poetry. I, I'm, yeah, I'm more ironic, more, um, maybe self-deprecating, mm-hmm. um, as a poet. Um, whereas a lot of my songs are like ballads about like people I respect mm-hmm. and, and admire unequivocally. Mm-hmm. And that can make for a great song. It doesn't usually make for a good poem, right? right. Like it, a lot of times that kind of, theme makes for a maudlin poem you know sure that, sure, uh, sure. Uh, so uh so yeah man I, i'm not sure if that quite answers the question but maybe oh, it, it definitely definitely does but know? i i i wanted to move into and maybe wrap up with this question we'll bring it back to poetry and uh i wondered if you could speak to not that i have a specific question here but if you could speak to the fulfillment you find in I guess truly putting a piece of yourself into a poem and, and as a writer saying, well, this is my voice, but I also want to share maybe my sentiment. I know you just said sentimentality, 
but my right. my sensibility my uh uh my disposition because you know you talked about river rouge you know warrendale's big for you that whole area and that whole blue cross work blue collar working class vibe and uh you know that that whole philip levine thing you know making sure that you're not just you know being self-deprecating but that you're you're putting a piece of yourself which is a part of your personal history which is a part of your parents which is a part of the friends you've had you know what you know what i'm getting at john yeah yeah definitely uh and um yeah it's this question i think this tension sometimes you feel between putting yourself in there unvarnished yeah you know and and also but you're inevitably when you're writing a poem uh, at the same time creating a persona and know? also and, uh, a bit of history you know yes so, yeah. definitely and um and you know you got into this kind of social class thing and like some of these working class themes that I am interested in mainly, mainly because of the places I grew up, right? Warrendale, West Detroit, you know, like that neighborhood was just this total like neighborhood full of city workers and like a, a smattering of like UAW, like auto workers. Like that, that was where I was from. My dad was a professor. My mom was a nurse. So I was, I was from that neighborhood, but I, and, and my parents like lived there cause my dad was a professor of private, university and he he didn't make as much money as our neighbors who were like more blue collar than him you know what i mean so like we kind of we had to live there for for economic reasons but i think because because my dad was a professor right that made my neighbors kind of like wonder about him maybe maybe he's not like one of us right like um maybe he's a little bougie or something or you know so I, like my, all my friends parents did things that were very different than mine but i still like i mean i i still found myself because i all my friends were like these kids of blue collar parents i still found myself like wanting to like tell their stories mm -hmm. you know or at least engage with with that history mm -hmm. of that place mm -hmm. um and then um i think um more recently getting back to your question i i think i've gotten better at putting myself in to the pieces like in this way where i'm like hey you know i'm writing about some of these class histories and these themes of like social class but i'm not like i don't fit well into this social class that i'm writing about i'm like you know i, I grew up around that but i you know i also have this other thing where i was mm -hmm. like in a very academic family and sure. like that's something i've i've be, become more direct about in my writing and kind of try to channel and like you know i'm like that's a i think like maybe that's an interesting background like mm -hmm. maybe that's that's something to um to examine more you know mm -hmm. like uh it's funny when i was uh, 17 you mentioned philip levine who's like you know a poet hero of mine and um my mom's first cousin kevin cantwell who's a great poet uh, as the professor down in Macon, Georgia, um, came up to Southgate. And, um, you know, I was asking about poets he liked. And he said, hey, man, he's like, um, you ever read Philip Levine? I said, no. And he says, really, you grew up in Detroit and you've never read Philip Levine? It's going to take your cousin from Macon, Georgia to get you to read <laughs> Philip Levine? And he was kind of ribbing me, you know, and like, and then asking my dad, like, hey, man, how come you've never shown him any Philip Levine? I right. mean, come on. You know, right. this seems like an obvious thing. Right. So, uh, 
uh, that was pretty funny. But Kevin, Kevin's the guy who actually got me into Levine. And um, I, you know, yeah, uh, I got to see Levine in a pretty intimate setting at um, 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 gosh, uh, Meadow, um, Lincoln Meadow Grove College, okay. right? That's, that's, mm-hmm. That's the college on McNichols there. Yep. That's that's no longer, and um, and uh, it was a it was a fantastic reading. I think I was twenty one at the time. Um, wow, that's, that's a big memory for me. You're but I, I have something. this. Oh, I was just going to say you're hitting on something that that is worth saying, and I think that's that we should say that this this is where you have gotten. You've gotten to this point where the the poet does not, nor does the writer, have to be uh, authoritative. Uh, but sincerity uh, is the important thing to say, yeah. here I am, this is what I'm going to talk about, but this is where I do come from, but right. I do want to talk about this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And one of the longer poems from um, my next book uh, is called University of Detroit, a brief memoir with basketball and poetry, you know, it's like, um, and uh, I, I think getting, getting at what you were saying, putting yourself into the, like I decided to like write, write more about like the fact that when I was growing up, like I was, a, and I still am like a big fan of like basketball. I was like in Detroit in 89 and 90 when the Pistons were winning, you know, it's so, like, I'm, I'm trying to fuse all these things. And I'm like, why didn't any of these have to like be unrelated? Like, right. why can't I put a thing about all these like university of Detroit basketball players I used to go watch with my dad mm-hmm. in a poem that, that's like also about like how much I love reading Gerard Manley Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it can all be, that's, that's, that's me really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all that stuff is me unvarnished, all oh, those yeah. interests, you know? And so like, yeah, I think that's a cool thought. Like, you know, you, know, you have to, you have to get to a place, I think where you're, um, where you're not as concerned about like subscribing to a persona to, to right. put yourself into the work, you know? Right. Um, um, I felt compelled suddenly to quote one of my favorite, if not my absolute favorite, Wilco lyric or Jeff Tweedy lyric, which is every song is a comeback. And you can interpret that however you want, but, uh, and maybe you you might vibe with this too, but you know, you, you know me, John, you've known that I've, I've written whatever, 1000 articles at this point. And there are only so many genres of music. So that means that statistically speaking, I have spoken to, 200 folk artists, 200 rock artists, 200 techno artists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just divide it all up. Every On the 199th folk artist article I write, I am still open to that conversation with that folk artist, opening up my eyes to seeing folk music in a new way through their eyes. I can't say, well, I've made my mind up and I am authoritative on what folk music is. Every piece is a chance at a new perspective. Hmm. I dig that, man. With yeah. Poetry too, I feel, you know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's no, uh, run that Wilco quote by me again. Every, every song every is a comeback. Is, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I've never heard that. Uh, yeah. I, I like Wilco, by the way. I, mm-hmm. um, and um, speaking of, music and genres like Nels Klein, their guitar player, oh, I've yeah. been fascinated with for a long time, going back to his time with um, the Geraldine Fibbers and the Nels Klein trio and all the experimental jazz he's done. Mm-hmm. Like I, I find him to be like a fascinating musician who almost doesn't even like 
subscribe to the notion of genre. He's right. just like walked through it. And yep. So, yeah, I, I think that's certainly someone who for whom every song is a comeback. Every oh, yeah. song's like this new possibility that oh, yeah. um, doesn't have to conform what, to what came before, you know? Uh, before I wrap up, you mentioned uh, a new book. Is that coming together? How's that going? Great. Uh, I'm, uh, supposedly, I, I just saw the proofs the other day. It's called uh, Poolside at the Dearborn Inn. And uh, my uh, dear friends, uh, you know, you, I know you know Brian Smith. He used to be music editor of the Metro Times. Um, and, Bit of a mentor his, uh, to me. Yeah. Yep. Maggie Smith is great, too. Um, she's, um, you know, they're married and uh, they started a small press out in Tucson, Arizona called R&R Press. So they're putting out uh, my book, Poolside of the Dearborn Inn, this coming April. So it's going to be out for uh, National Poetry Month. Terrific. Um, I'm already starting to plan a release party um, at uh, uh, Page's Bookshop in, uh, in Rosedale, uh, Grandmont Rosedale, uh, for April 22nd, I believe. It's Friday night. Terrific. So yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm really excited and terrified that a new book's coming out, um, <laughs> kind of, you know, uh, that, that thing you're saying about putting yourself into stuff like that's important, but it's also like, it's also like scary. So. Right. Right. Well, I appreciate you doing it every time and you give me inspiration, John. So keep it up. Hey, likewise, man. I, I wish I was half as uh, prolific as you, Jeff. I'll tell you what. So. Well, you took a coffee break. I swear. It's all the coffee. That's what keeps there you going. You go. <laughs> That's it, uh, man. And music and listening to music. Um, sure. John, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate you having me. And thanks for everything you do for um, just like building community among artists in this area, man. Like, oh, I uh, love it. And I love being so able awesome. to do it from, with, from within a library through a library podcast. It's a thrill. Heck yeah, man. That's great. And that was our chat with John Freeman. If you are interested in tracking down his poetry, you'll be looking for his pen name, which is Cal Freeman. Highly recommend the uh, book that came out a couple years ago called Fight Songs. Looking forward to his next one coming out in April. Just a great chat about poetry and writing in general, and I really appreciate you listening. If you're out there and you do want to engage with the page, just just do it. I hate to make it sound like a slogan. Just get the words down there and just try to block out any of that self-doubt. This is all about you and the page. Getting it out can be so cathartic, so fulfilling. Thank you so much for listening. This has been A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. The music that you've heard at the beginning and now here at the end is by local musician known as Zunset. We'll have a link to his Bandcamp in the show notes as well. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to ferndalefriends.org or you can just tell a friend about it. You could share this to social media, like or leave a review or follow us out there on iTunes or wherever we're at. And now, just like John, I'm going to go and get myself another cup of coffee. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more.